Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Education. I'm João Soutomayor, a PhD student in Sociology of Education at the New York University. And I'm your host for today's episode. I'll be talking to Professor Keith Mace in his new book, The Unteachables, Disability Rights and the Invention of Black Special Education, recently published by the University of Minnesota Press. Keith Mace is an associate professor in the Department of African American and African Studies at the University of Minnesota. Through a detailed analysis of academic history, public policy, and social movements, Professor Mace details the history of special education in America, the social construction of disability categories, and the historical processes behind the overrepresentation of Black students in special education programs. Keith, Thanks for joining us, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Joe, for, for in, inviting me, and this is great. Yeah, great. So to get us started, I ask, you, I ask you to tell us a little bit about yourself, your academic background, and your academic interests. Sure. So um, I was born and raised in New York City, um, from the great state of New York, and um, I spent my all of my formative years there and was educated at New York City Public Schools and and I was um, someone who was always enamored by the way in which, you know, the schools were structured and, you know, what students were placed where and, you know, why there, there were some students who were in the, the so-called high ability classes. And there were some of us that were in the middle and there were some who were in the lower ability classes. And that stuck with me. And I had no real interest of, and obviously when I was in, you know, elementary school or grade school are writing about this, but the way in which the grade levels were structured around ability stuck with me because, you know, as someone who was not uh, a student who was all that uh, inspired to learn when I was in school, um, I uh, wondered later once I, I did become inspired to learn, and that wasn't until I graduated from high school, and I started at uh, CUNY, City University of New York. I began my college career uh, at New York City Technical College, and then I transferred to City College in Harlem. I'm from Harlem, born and raised in Harlem. Uh, that I began to you know, think about you know, what education meant to me as a young African-American uh, growing up in a big city in an urban environment like, like Harlem and like New York. And then... I, mean, I was just interested in studying social movements and race and uh, racial politics and did not really uh, begin to ask questions about educational disability or civil rights educational history until much later in my career because I uh, graduated. I went to Princeton and got my Ph.D. and I, I was somebody who was enamored with the Black Power Movement and holiday rituals and and trying to understand how black communities, particularly black activists, uh, understood the the historical past, the African past, and and how they made use of that past. And so those are some of my early questions coming out of grad school. Uh, but it was it wasn't until I started working as a professor that there were just you know just by happenstance, school districts uh, here in Minnesota kept asking me to help them with. Uh, the writing of black history curriculum. So they did not have a whole lot of content at the African-American history uh, at, at the level of black history in their social studies classes. And they wanted me to continue to help with that. And so that's why 
uh, or that's how I started to sort of link and connect educational his, uh, issues uh, with historical issues, if that makes sense. And uh, there was a, a point where uh, I began to read educational scholars early in my career as an assistant professor. And then even when I had published uh, the book uh, on Kwanzaa and Black Power, I was still toying with the idea of maybe uh, writing something in educational history. So it, it so the I got I got bit by that bug much earlier uh, in my career, but so that this kind of the outcome of that years later is the Unteachables, but but certainly I had been thinking about these these uh, questions that emerge in the Unteachables for quite a long time. Yeah, thank you. I think that that's that's fascinating in the book. I should say it's yeah, it's very interesting, very rich. There's a lot of detail there. So hopefully we can unpack some of that uh, during our conversation today. Uh, so let's let's get to it. Uh, so in the beginning, in the beginning of the book, you argue that the origin of special education programs in American schools has to do with the enactment of compulsory education laws at the start of the 20th century. Can you speak a little bit about that and outline maybe some of the primary actors which were responsible for this connection? Sure. So compulsory attendance laws uh, sort of happen haphazardly, meaning that there were state laws that were passed around the country around the same time. So I would say most compulsory attendance laws were passed uh, within a 20, 25 year period late 19th century, first couple of decades of the 20th century that compelled uh, families to send their children to school. And it was a requirement, uh, uh, hence compulsory. But these compulsory laws did something that I think a lot of people didn't realize. And that's why this alarm took place by uh, many superintendents and psychologists, uh, those who were just used to having kids who were uh, more privileged, came from wealthy and middle-class backgrounds, were mainly white, uh, white American and not uh, European white, and certainly not uh, kids of color, attending public schools or public schools or, or general education, as it were, was kind of this white pr preserve of privileged families. And so compulsory education kind of opened up the door for other kids to start attending schools regularly. And then the question was, what do we do with all these different uh, children from a heterogeneous background in terms of race and class? And then how do we meet their needs? Um, so this, this, when I said it, it set off, set off alarms, I'm, I'm not exaggerating. They, they said that mass instruction of this nature uh, would impede the progress of normal students uh, who we need to pour all of our resources into, uh, as one uh, editorial from the Journal of Educational Psychology said, you know, white middle-class students are the torchbearers of our American civilization and democracy. And we should not have that impeded by uh, this mix of students coming in uh, who we, now we have to uh, direct uh, resources to to try to teach. And of course, they were understood to be unteachable because by the, the standards of normality set by 
uh, IQ measurements and other things, these kids were understood to be uh, what they call retarded, which just meant they were, you know, they just fell behind their age and grade, grade level in terms of their school progress. So uh, that that begins the, the process. I have a, a few uh, quotes that I typically use and read uh, just to give you a sense of, you know, why these folks really understood this to be a problem. Men like Edgar Dahl. Edgar Dahl is the leader of what's called the Vineland Training School in New Jersey. Many of these people are clinical psychologists. They're PhDs. They're trained psychologists. They're educational psychologists. And they, they are the ones who really um, sound the alarm. Uh, Edgar Dahl said, you know, compulsory education is trying to teach everything to everyone, uh, sending all children to school regardless of their mental limitations. Um, he goes on to say that uh, the public school with its program of mass instruction faces the impossible task of giving impartial attention to the most heterogeneous aggregation of different social and intellectual classes uh, that can be possibly imagined in a common gathering. So men like Edgar Dahl, uh, Henry Goddard, uh, many of the superintendents who ran school systems, uh, men like James Van Sickle, who was the superintendent of the Baltimore Public Schools, uh, uh, Twit Meyer, who ran the Delaware Schools, Byron Phillips, who was an educational expert in uh, Philadelphia, um, uh, folks like Leonard uh, Arias. Arias is the superintendent of the Puerto Rican schools. These these folks are some of the leaders of, of this anti-compulsory education movement that then gives rise to special education, uh, what they call back then special classes. Yeah, and then uh, one of the things I found fascinating as, as you detailed this history of the social constructions of categories is how you spell out the social construction of normality uh, in, the, in the many categories which were created to define children as unteachable. And you place particular emphasis in the category of what they call morons. And, and can you explain why the creation of this category was, was, is key for us to understand the historical development of special education programs? Absolutely. Uh, this is a re really good question. And it's an important one because uh, the, the feeble-minded categories that existed for many years uh, basically revolved around the idiot and the imbecile. And the idiot on the statistical curve or the probability curve, the bell-shaped curve, the, when they started to use uh, what they call Binet tests uh, and other IQ tests, that the idiot was the one who scored the lowest. Somewhere anywhere between zero and 25 on the IQ scale. The imbecile was next, 26 to 50. And those folks had a, a myriad number of, of physical challenges. Uh, they were often uh, what we, we, we would consider today to be folks who would need uh, special help uh, in terms of not only education, but in terms of just getting on with the daily aspects of living, right? And so many of these students who were deemed or called idiots and, and imbeciles went to training schools, separate schools that were not part of the public education system. 
But then you got that top layer that that exists right below normal. And normal, and when we talk about normality, normal, normality and subnormality, the subnormal and the normal. Uh, sometimes they call the subnormal defective. They use this word defective all the time back in the early 20th century. That meant students who fell below 100 or fell below 90 to 110 uh, on IQ measurements. So uh, anything that was below 90 to 100 was considered subnormal. That moron was right below uh, 100. So uh, one or two standard deviations um, below the mean. So that meant 85 to, to, to 70 is where that moron uh, fell. But the key to the moron was that when compulsory attendance laws pushed all these students into schools and the students were uh, failing or not achieving according to the IQ measurements, for reasons that have to do, Jile, with the fact that they were coming off of the plantations, they were coming out of the factories, they, they were not privileged white students who went to school nine months out of the year, attended schools five days a week, or stayed in school, were able to stay in school for six hours a day. These black and brown and poor white children may have attended school six months out of the year, may have only been able to stay in school three or four days or stay for maybe a couple of hours. So when they showed up to white schools, obviously they were uh, failing or scoring below the statistical normal on IQ tests, right? So they were immediately rendered a morons. Now, the reason why they were rendered morons because there was nothing wrong with them for the most part, physically, right? Um, and they, they so often in the commentary back then, a lot of these clinical psychologists would say that the morons, we have to be careful with them because they look uh, normal, they're not sick, uh, they, they are deceiving because they are, tr- are attractive. Uh, so they use all these kind of words to justify the fact that although these kids were, were, were okay, uh, the only thing that signified their sickness was the fact that they scored below uh, 100 on the IQ test. So I talk about the statistical normal uh, being a construction uh, created by educational psychologists to render many children sick just by the, the mere fact that they uh, were struggling in their subject matters and they can't, they showed up to white schools one or two grades behind, or they showed up at nine years old instead of, for the first time instead of six years old. So that moron is going to be that label that encapsulates all of these struggling students who were physically okay but could not make uh, uh, yearly progress uh, from grade to grade in in public schools. And so that's why when we study the history of early special education, that moron is going to be the the prototype for understanding the struggling student, not only in 1900 and 1910, Gile, but in 1950, 1980, and even 2023. because that moron now is called the intellectually disabled. That's who the moron is today. So conceptually, the student is still there. They just changed the name, right? We don't call 
uh, we used to call uh, the moron in the 50s and 60s the educable mentally retarded, right? EMR or MMR, mildly mentally retarded. But now we just say intellectually disabled. So that the conception of the struggling student and all intellectual disability agile means is that one is so-called sub-average and intellectual functioning. That's all it means. There's no real deep um, analysis, or, analysis or definition to the word intellectually disabled. It just means what it meant back 100 years ago was that the student was behind uh, one or two grades. But that's the focus of special education when it comes to the intellectually disabled. And of course, that learning disabled child is going to be slightly below normal too, or could be normal or above normal statistically on an IQ scale, it, it was just that student who was still failing some subject matter, but they were scoring high on the IQ. So they're trying to figure out, well, who is this student and where do we need to place that student? That becomes the, the learning disabled later in the 20th century. Back then, they called that student a slow learner uh, or borderline or brain injured or something like that. So they had all of these different names for students up and down that IQ scale. Or, or as I say, on the, that, that left-hand side of the bell-shaped curve, they had all kinds of names for different students. Yeah, that's, that's all uh, very interesting. So now I wanted to move to, to some questions around what I understand to be the central uh, part or the central goal of the book, which, which was to, to explore what you call the educational disability rights movement, a movement largely influenced by the civil rights movement, but that often had cross purposes with it. And with the influence of the civil rights movement, there were challenges to the existing conceptions of unteachability, uh, particularly by white families, as you write. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about the nature of these challenges and what motivated them. Absolutely. So... Uh, one of the things that's, that's so distinctive about the early history of special education that it was created during the Jim Crow era. So special education as a creation of general education within the Jim Crow context uh, becomes a way of segregating or segmenting certain students from others. So you come out of this Jim Crow period and you get to the, to the World War II era and the post-war era, you're going to have something very interesting happen. So most of, and that's why the racialization of disability is important, especially educational disability, high incidence disabilities, because the racialization means that, well, most students, most white struggling students were also EMR, educable mentally retarded. So it wasn't like they were saying that all uh, uh, black and brown students were, it's just that disproportionately um, most black and brown students ended up being EMR. But that meant that in terms of the, the, the total numbers within the EMR category, they were also white, right? So EMR becomes a way for white families to get educational redress for their struggling students. But what begins to happen is that you have another segment of the white community whose children are also failing. And that was that LD student that I talked about. When I, when I situate, because I compare the moron or the EMR student with the LD student, back then, moron with brain injured or slow learner, that was the, the, the word. White families just could not understand two things. One, by the time we get to the late 50s, or early 1960s, 
why is it this public policy focus solely on black and brown students? So when you get to the early 1960s and the mid-1960s, with the war on poverty and the civil rights movement, you get the Economic Opportunity Act, Head Start comes out of that, and you get the Elementary and Secondary Education Act, ESA, which that's uh, uh, part, that's becomes, uh, that's Title I is what gets focused on black and brown poor families. So you have this education, and then you have the desegregation movement that is designed to eliminate the dual racial school system that we have inherited over from the 19th century. So this educational focus of black and brown folks, albeit partial, albeit noble, it wasn't really addressing the real needs of black and brown folks, but it was part of a larger public policy grassroots thrust. That kind of attention on those students made white parents ask questions about their own struggling students who were also, but they were struggling for different reasons. One reason that they were struggling is they were con- being considered handicapped as well. Handicapped becomes a way of understanding disability in the mid 20th century. So that's, so you got that reaction to uh, black and brown uh, families and movements by white families because of the attention the federal government is paying to these, these young students uh, from a poverty lens. Then you've got a segment of white families, middle-class families, who are saying that, wait a minute, our children actually are scoring above average or, or, or average on IQ tests, but they're still not making the grade. What is wrong with them? And why is it that the federal government is not paying enough ten- attention to that, those group of students? So here's the thing, that learning disabilities movement comes out of the movement um, for EMR, for educable or retarded children, because number one, EMR becomes stigmatized as a label for both black and brown kids as well as white ones. But the white families are saying, wait a minute, our kids are not classically retarded. They need another label. And so this push toward understanding their academic difficulties centered around their learning disability, which meant that there was something wrong with them internally. So learning disabilities, you have to contrast it with EMR because learning disabilities meant that my, my, my kid struggles because of some kind of internal uh, uh, dysfunction, whereas the black EMR students are struggling according to the social scientists and government officials because they come from compromised families, and neighborhoods that are riddled with poverty. So you get you so you move from these genetic explanations of black and brown failure to these environmental explanations around deficits. And the deficits are borne by the black and brown kids because of their families and their communities. But the white children, their deficits, their academic deficits are not born out of their environments. Uh, it's just born out of the fact that there's something going wrong with them internally. So that learning disabilities movement, by the time we get to the mid and late 60s, is almost a thoroughly white movement. And by the time the law is passed, the Specific Learning Disabilities Act in 1969, it's mainly covering white children. And interestingly, the language of the policy says that this law is not to include 
students who are considered culturally deprived or educationally disadvantaged. And those were the black EMR students. And so that's why I talk about this bifurcated uh, grassroots movement, educational disability rights on the one hand and the civil rights movement on the other. Yes, they are all concerned with students, but the way in which the public, public policy outcomes emerge, they sort of take up this separation that was created by social scientists and government officials and even the media by the time we, we get to 69 and 1970. But something curiously happens in the 1970s uh, to, to sort of push back uh, this attempt to unceremoniously just dump black and brown kids into EMR because that's when that struggle uh, starts to ensue in the 1970s when black and brown families, they start resisting the characterization of their children as uh, as retarded. Yeah, so maybe to to illustrate to to the listeners a little bit of what you you just outlined. Now, uh, could you maybe talk a little bit more about the Elementary and Secondary Education Act and and why this reform didn't really uh, benefited the educational opportunities of black students and kind of benefited white students more? So it, it, it did, but what, so one of the things that it did, it's, I won't say invisibly because it was, because they were, the government was really, they were really vocal about what these two laws were trying to do. I say that this is how the federal government constructed black, black and brown special education, right? because they understood the problems that beset Black and Latinx kids as one of either poverty or the things that would hold back a Latinx kid would be language and their inability to speak and write English. So the whole bilingual movement is going to be the way in which the federal government responds to that to that so-called language deficit, but those kids are being cast as retarded as well. But it's but it's all incubated inside uh, the Elementary and Secondary Education Act. That's where it, that's where the federal government's construction of black and brown special education is. That's where it exists. There's no white special education at the public policy level. But that's why the white families were clamoring for it, because they kept saying, well, we have special needs kids, too. And you're focusing on these black and brown kids, but you're not focusing on ours. So that's why they create additional title amendments to ESA that then emerged into the Specific Learning Disabilities Act in 69. So from a poverty perspective, you know, it's all about, you know, remediation uh, it's all about compensatory education approaches that comes out of EOA and ESA because it's about what the black and brown kids are not bringing to the school. They have these deficits and then we need to provide them compensatory services to catch them up. Uh, but it was never an attempt to really invest in their, in their educational needs because it was all understood through the lens of poverty, through the context of poverty, whereas white students, their special education um, uh, understanding was, was met really by a set of concerns that suggested that 
we have to invest in these white kids, not just by, you know, pouring money into into uh, entitlement remedial compensatory programs, but we may have to understand special needs uh, in a different kind of way. So they started investing in graduate programs and special education. They wanted uh, credential special education teachers. They wanted to understand uh, the nuances of learning in a way that would help kids with learning disabilities um, in a wholesome way. They covered it in the new law that emerges, Gile, in 1974 called the All Education Children's Handicap Act, which becomes uh, Individual Disabilities Education Act, IDEA, in 1990. So that famous law that we love so much now, that law actually was passed in 1975 under another name. But they put all the resources, so all the things we under, we associate with special needs, special education, now, 504 Rehabilitation Act, that's in 73. Um, um, uh, IEPs, Individualized Education Plans, that comes out of the 75 law. Again, the law is just robust in terms of how they will respond to all so-called disabled students, right? But it's all bifurcated and racialized in the 1970s that there are certain ways in which the language of that 75 law, like the 69 one, is not covering these black and brown students. You know why? Because they said these students are already covered under EOA and ESA. No need to cover the culturally deprived again in 75, when in 65, we took care of them with ESA. So that's why you have this bifurcated public policy structure that, that evolves into the 75 law. And in, in many ways, it's still in the 90, uh, 1990 IDEA amendment. And even you can argue that it's still around. But yeah, I mean, I just think we got locked into something that in many ways the federal government helped create as well as university professors, the psychologists, uh, the mainly the edu- educational psychologists and the clinical psychologists who created these discourses back in the early 20th century, and we have to still live with them, even to this very day, even well into the 21st century. Uh, we still are living with some of these discourses and these policies. Yeah, th- thank you for, for the detailed explanation. And, and as you were starting to outline in your, in your previous answer, uh, there were certainly some social movements and political resistance or at least contestation to what was happening around in the 70s and in the 80s. Could you tell us a little bit more about this contestation period and to what extent it was successful? Certainly. So there were a number of court cases that black and brown families began to file. Uh, Well, you have Park uh, versus Pennsylvania, which is kind of this there are sort of certain kind of watershed court cases that kind of opens up uh, this whole question of educational disability. Uh, you have, but you have these smaller cases that were really important and consequential. So Larry, Larry P. Uh, versus Riles is going to be a case in California where black families sue the San Francisco Unified School District for overplacing their children in mentally retarded disability categories. Uh, and then it be, so they won that case, but you have others with Asian American and Latinx families, Lyle versus Nichols. You have so many other uh, these cases. Hop, uh, Hopkins versus Hansen and DC is one of the early ones in 1967. So 
they don't win every case, but they start to win enough of them that force states and districts to stop uh, placing black and brown kids in the category EMR, educable, mentally retarded. And so as things work on the ground, because the placement practices were being done by white teachers, they still had the this insatiable appetite to remove black and brown kids from general education classrooms for a host of reasons, y'all. I mean, it's just not even something that was, I mean, you got to, so, okay, I, the, in the context, it's also integration. So, yes, Brown v. Board is 1954, but black and brown kids don't start showing up to white schools until after 1964 because of the, the strong arm of the, of the Civil Rights Act of 64, which has all of these mechanisms built into it around compliance, that we will withhold financial resources from districts and states if they don't integrate uh, their schools. And so many of the kids who start showing up to schools for the first time, black and brown kids, it's not until the late 60s and into the 70s. So again, the general education system is going to figure out a way to resist them. Yes, they'll bring them in, they will accept them, but they'll start putting them into these ability tracks. so you have basic track one, two, three. You got your Votech track all the way up to your college prep tracks. And your college prep tracks would be all white. And your Votech tracks, uh, vocational education, would be black and brown. And then, then the students would be cast as EMR. So they start suing the school districts from, from doing that, and they won. That meant that this, the teachers who were placing these kids in these tracks needed another place to put them. So now the LD category, which is mainly white, 69, 70, 71, by the time we get to the late 70s, early 80s, guess what happens to LD? LD classes become more black and brown. So by the time we get from 70, I would say from 79 to 89, that's where we see this influx of black and brown students uh, deemed learning disabled. And by the time we get to the 90s, you have an overrepresentation of black students in the category of LD uh, as well. Now, it doesn't mean that they still were not going to EMR. It's just that the numbers began to drop in terms of new placements. They didn't, it wasn't like they told a lot of the black and brown kids who would deem EMR that you no longer are EMR. It's just that the numbers who were going in, the new numbers were, were much smaller. And so those numbers begin to flatten out a little bit, but the LD numbers explode. And the same, the same story, Jao, is you can see it in EBD with the behavior categories uh, at the same time. Uh, and that's a whole other story that I detail in Chapter 5. Yeah, thanks. Uh, yeah, my next question was actually uh, about the, the EBD category. As, as you kind of uh, outlining the book, it kind of emerges around this, this same uh time period that the contestation was happening and the changes in the LD category uh, were happening for black students. So I, I, I wonder if you could provide us with, with some context around the emergence of EBD and how that became a disproportionately black category as well. So just briefly, so there were two categories in the early 20th century. Again, all this stuff is about tying it back to the first few decades of the 20th century and how psychologists understood 
uh, behavior. So there were two categories, ED, emotional disturbance, and BD, behavior disorder. And the racialization of those categories had everything to do with how one understood the so-called bad behavior versus behavior that was bad, but was not as, as bad, if that makes sense. So on the, so on the, I'll give you an example. So the BD side, you had uh, socially maladjusted behavior, which was antisocial behavior. Uh, You had a lot of criminal behavior and you had a lot of acting out. So anything from acting out behavior that they they call pre-delinquent to delinquent behavior, folks who were engaged in, in behaviors that put them under court supervision. And then you got uh, some of the uh, uh, psychopathological behaviors that also is going to later end up on the DSM. So this is pre-DSM. So that behavior disorder, social maladjustment is the real bad stuff, right? The ED stuff, bad, but again, racialized as an emotional disturbance that's internal, as opposed to the BD behavior disorder that's external, so you get these these conceptions of internalizing behavior and externalizing behavior that e- that evolved throughout the 20th century. By the time we get to the 80s, um, at the state level, they merged them and called it EBD. But check this out, y'all. In 1975, the Education for All Handicapped Children's Act that I talked talked about, they are going to. They were debating in the 60s whether uh, they were going to cover. Uh, juvenile delinquency as a special education category because they kept saying, okay, all of these children are exceptional children. So exceptionality meant everything from the idiot to the genius. That's how Lewis Terman uh, and those folks in the early 20th century understood all of these divisions. They said, well, there's not just two students, normal and subnormal. You got all these individual differences in between. So they chop up and put all these people on this bell-shaped curve. So the people who were understood to be emotional disturbed um, or behavior disorder, juvenile delinquent, they were, when I say they, the folks in Congress were trying to figure out in the late 50s and early 60s that we should cover them because they're special needs students. But by the time we get to that 75 All Education Children's Act, guess who gets left out? The socially maladjusted and they cover the emotional disturbed child. As they call it seriously emotionally disturbed, SED. That's the kid that gets covered. Those kids are, are all kids racially, but they're mainly white. And the But the kids who they leave out are mainly black and brown because they fell under the BD social maladjustment side. And they still don't cover those kids. And, you know, they say that EBD at the state level, it's not a medical label. It's an administrative label, uh, so it doesn't, you know, afford those children the ability to get certain kinds of services. They're not on the DSM, like kids who may be uh, op- oppositional defiant disorder, ODD, or conduct disorder, CD. So you got all this psychopathology. So this here's another uh, part of the story. I think one of your questions is really interesting about where I may go next with this, because I think that there's some overlap between the psychological categories and the psychiatric categories that become crystallized uh, really on a DSM-3 uh, that was completed in 1980 and certainly on the DSM-4 and 5. 
you can see how these things uh, become canonized and sort of separate uh, disease entities that are that are psychiatric uh, and they revolve around mental disorders and not necessarily educational disorders. So they, they can overlap sometimes, but they are often separate. But my chapter five on EBD traces this long history, this long evolution of, of behavior uh, in public schools. Yeah, thank, thank you for, for outlining this history and, and often a frustrating history of the evolution of this this categories. Uh, so being being mindful of time, I wanted to, to shift gears a bit and, and make sure to ask you some broader questions around some of the reflections or lessons learned from this analysis, uh, this historical analysis that you present in the book. Um, so one one question that I had is that in in, in the education in, in sociological literature, there's often an emphasis on risk factors like prior academic preparation, poor prior academic preparation as explanation for special education disproportionality. And you you addressed this discussion a bit in your concluding chapter and you write, and I'm quoting that quoting you here, that the more risk factors are introduced into the equation, the greater their marginalization in the educational space. Can you, can you spell out a little bit more in detail your thoughts about this discussion in the literature around the inclusion of risk factors as explanations for disproportionality and how you think about that? Yeah, for sure. So one of the things that I I wanted to focus on the book was this whole concept of at risk. Um, At risk has been around for a long time. It gets codified uh, in the 1982 report uh, called Children at Risk. And, And I noticed that that term really became a signifier for you know, all the kinds of other terms that were used you know, throughout the 20th century, uh, EMR, it's not, so at risk, it's not a special education label, but it becomes one of these labels that operates like the culturally deprived and the educational disadvantaged. So I wanted to flip this notion of risk around and say, well, who is the child at risk? Is it black and brown children uh, from impoverished families, or is it white middle-class kids from privileged families? And and I, I thought that in many ways, special education was a risk management system in that it was protecting the interests of normal middle class white children um, and not necessarily those who were so-called at risk. So I wanted to play around with the concept a little bit. And I actually set that up in, in, in an introduction, but a little bit in chapter one. Uh, come back to it at the end of the book to say that I'm wondering if we are um, sort of adding uh, we, we are contributing to the problem when we identify at-risk behaviors or at-risk um, uh, educational achievements or non-achievements because we, 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 we put a lot of things under at-risk. So we can say that a, ch- a child may be at-risk from failing because of what we see in the prior grades or the kid is at-risk because they come from this kind of family or they come from this kind of neighborhood, or their parents are, were certain kinds of people. Uh, it's, it's replete in the literature. So I say that when we add more risk factors to our analysis, aren't we doing more damage? Uh, and, and, and are we contributing to a deficit model 
by saying that children are at risk because they may share certain attributes. Um, and so that part of me playing around with and flipping it had everything to do with asking the question, who is really at risk? Is, is our notion of at-riskness tied to our conceptions of who is a risky learner and we are not paying attention to attention to who is the learner that is more more privileged, excuse me, and the learner who actually is the one who is really at risk when we start to uh, provide resources to other students. And and this is this thinking is not original with me. I, I picked it up from the early psychologists who kept saying that that you know the normal no, normal child is the torchbearer of our system. And we need to put all the resources there. And, and that, that's the thing that kept you know, reminding me that this whole thing about risk may be, we, we may be looking at it um, uh, in the wrong way. But I say that, so if, you, so if I have one risk factor, Jow, okay, that, that may be, that means something different if you tell me I have 10 risk factors. I would argue the way they constructed educational disability, black and brown kids have a plethora of risk factors, right? It just seems to be, they seem to be cloaked in risk factors because the risk, risk factors are going to be the things that, who we are, what we have that's internal to us. That's that's what the social scientific discourse is saying, negative stuff. It's going to be the people we come from. It's going to be the neighborhoods we come from. It's going to be how we perform on tests. It's going to be how we comport in classrooms, how we behave in and out of class, in the schools. It's going to be how we dress, how we speak. So you, you, you keep if you keep piling up the risk factors, it's a fait accompli in terms of what we may be capable of doing as young people in schools. And so I try to deconstruct this, this notion of, of, of risk factors because I think that oftentimes it does more harm than it does good. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for that for summarizing that argument there. I thought it was very well constructed throughout the book. So I appreciate having the chance to hear from you now. Uh, so my, my, my last main question about the book is probably the, the broadest of the questions, which is, I guess, what we, we leave the book kind of wondering uh, that you, you describe a history of special education programs and in a way that uh, those programs have often gone against the educational interests of, of Black students. And, and how do you see the state of special education in, in America today? And what are some directions you believe special education should move to, to truly favor the, the educational opportunities of Black students? Man, that's a really, really weighty question. Uh, I, I, I go back and forth. I... So I want to remind people that what I'm talking about this in this book is about high incidence disabilities, which are, you know, the EBDs, the intellectual disabilities, and um, uh, the the uh, EMRs and uh, the learning disabilities. And the question I raise is not that black and brown kids are not disabled or can't be disabled. How many of those students need not be there? And how many of those students were placed there for reasons that, that, okay, that was about a judgment rendered against them by a person outside of either their community or certainly outside of their, their age group, their generation. 
So a lot of black and brown kids get put there because they become intolerable to an adult in the school, whether that's a teacher, a principal, a superintendent or somebody. That tolerability becomes the basis of educational judgment. So that that's that swell the ranks of these hot what they, what they call high incidence categories. I'm not saying that special education is not important to meet the special needs of kids who who actually need it and they they may, they actually have a disability. So I'm not questioning the entire system, but to reflect on your question, you know, I do wonder whether there's an inability to fix the the system of racialized special education because I think that that's how we've always handled students who we didn't like or we could not teach or or handle or deal with. Special education is a system of sorting and removing. And as long as special education serves that function and that purpose, I think we will always have this racialized system because the dictum becomes if there's a student in front of me as a teacher, well, I may say that that student is, is better served somewhere else, right? And not in my classroom. And so as long as we have the ability to sort and remove students, I think we'll always have this racialized system. There was a part of me in the beginning of the research, I'm like, you know, this problem is so intractable. I think one day they're going to get up and walk away from it. They're going to like, you know, <laughs> just, just remove all the classifications and labels because they come, because if you, Listen, if you have an objective that you can't achieve or you just can't find a solution, you, you change the solution or you change the objective. I mean, you you may just decide, you know, let me just walk away from it. So I, I, I struggle. That question is so important to me that I struggle with it because I just can't imagine in 2023, the system resembles the way it was in 1923. Like, I, I just can't fathom that. So... You mean to tell me in another 100 years, the system will still look the same way? The answer is yes, or we could have just walked away and abandoned the system and just came up with something different. So I go back and forth on that question. Yeah, thank you. I think this, yeah, those are the, the, the tough questions. So I appreciate hearing your insight on that. That was, that was very, very helpful. I also, uh, raised the, I also raised the A word too in this context as other people raise the A word in other contexts. There may be folks who call for the abolishment of, special, of racialized special education. Uh, because again, it, you know, arguably, you know, it looks like a carceral system. Uh, one can make a credible argument that that's what it is. And so as people call for uh, uh, abolition in, 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 in various carceral contexts, why not in, in special education as well? So I also, I also grapple with that as well. Yeah, I think, I think that's, that's certainly a, a plausible conclusion from all the, the history that you've outlined. I think uh, given the, the, the struggles and frustration, I think that's, 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 a, valid, that's a valid thought. Uh, Okay, so uh, we've taken already a, a lot of your time. So to, to wrap up, I want to ask you just a couple of, of, of final short questions. First is where can listeners find more information about your book? Oh, more information about the book. Uh, the book, like you said, was published by University of Minnesota Press. 
and so they can um, go to the press's website. They can also um, uh, find information about the book um, at, I'm the director of, of a center called Ridges, Race, Indigeneity, Disability, uh, Gender, and Sexuality. And uh, we do various book talks uh, at, at the center here at Ridges and University of Minnesota. So, uh, or if they want to purchase the book, they certainly can purchase it through uh, Amazon or go directly to the distributor, which is the University of Chicago Press. So there are various places to, to find information about the book. Okay, thank you. And finally, can you tell us a little bit about other projects that you're currently working on or directions that you're thinking of moving forward after finishing this, this major project? So I became fascinated with behavior. I mean, out of all my chapters, there's chapter five that fascinated me the most. Uh, I mean, I like all the chapters, but the, I, I think that there was something about, you know, chapter five being an unfinished project. So I may, you know, do more around the history of racialized behavior. Uh, that may be the next book, book project. And, and, and as, I, as I was telling you, the dynamism uh, around behavior has the makings of kind of this, this interdisciplinary you know, aspects of the dominant disciplines of psychology and psychiatry, uh, other, other clinical medicines, and, as, and that's the kind of the dominant frame, as it were. But there's a counter frame coming out of the, the, the studies, the ethnic studies. So black studies, uh, critical disability studies, mad studies, um, feminist studies, uh, all these different studies are in many ways a reaction to the dominant disciplines. And so this counter narrative around, you know, if, you know, it goes back to this whole question about mad studies. So there are people who say that, okay, if you want to label me something and you call me that, well, I, I, have, I have the agency to reject it or accept it and redefine it. So if you're going to say that I'm insane or I'm mentally ill, then let me weigh in on that, right? That's, that's mad studies. And, and black studies and critical disability studies are saying the same thing. We want to reimagine and redefine what you uh, determined was black and what all the things that that meant, right? All the associations of blackness, of disability-ness, of madness, we want to redefine. So I'm so so I'm saying the answer to your question in a long-winded way. That in, on the one hand, I'm interested in the dominant construction of behavior, uh, psych, psychiatry, psychology, and then the pushback from the ethnic studies disciplines of, of which I represent. And so that may be my next project. Yes, yeah, sounds sounds interesting. I'm, I'm I'm looking forward to to, to knowing more about it. Uh, okay, so Keith. Thank you for being on the podcast today. I really enjoyed our conversation. Uh, we've been talking about the book, The Unteachables, Disability Rights and the Invention of Black Special Education by Professor Keith Mays and recently published by the University of Minnesota Press. Thank you for listening and until next time.